Mike likes it when we give a little. That's that's like the clapper. Like the, yes. There's an official name for that. Not a clapper? It's not a clapper. Clap on, clap off. Stop clapper. <laughs> anyway, we clapped it. All right. Uh, so this is The Learning Conversation. This is a podcast. I'm Matt Burr. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Nomadic Learning. And Tim, could you introduce yourself quickly? Yeah, I'm Tim Sachet. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Nomadic Learning. We're here today with a special guest, Cameron Hedrick, who's the CLO of City. Thanks for joining us today, Cameron. Very happy to join you today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and I'm surprised. So we had Lori on earlier, mm-hmm. and somehow you still decided to come do this anyway. She no. warned me, yeah, okay. but I chose to do it anyway. Okay, excellent. No, well, Lori's a terrific uh, teammate, and uh, I was happy to to hang out with you guys. Cool. Well, so I, I don't know if you've, I mean, you've listened to Lori one. What we basically do is just kind of, we're sort of geek out about learning topics. Good. And and I just want, let's let's see how geeked out we can get. Okay, let's go. I have go. some crazy geeky things to say. Awesome. Okay. Let's do it. Excellent. So why don't we start by just, if you wouldn't mind, just introduce yourself a little bit, give us a little bit of your background, how you got to this role. At sure, sure, sure. My name's Cameron Hedrick. I'm the current chief learning officer for City. And the way that manifests itself here is uh, the learning group, the learning department comes into me, as you would expect. Also, performance management, how you rate people. And we work closely with compensation to figure out how that ties to comp. And the third prong is culture. Now, obviously, no one owns culture. That'd be a silly thing to say. But to the extent anyone speaks on the enterprise narrative of culture and how that's shaped, that's this team. That's interesting. I mean, I, I almost want to start by asking how those three things came together into a single job. Because that's not, not all CLOs have those three uh, responsibilities. So is, is that, that unique for you? Is that part of City or how, how did that happen? It's unique to this role. I haven't seen this done exactly this way. It came to me in this package, um, kind of. We've developed it a lot more since I've been in the role for a couple of years now. Uh, the synergies are uh, pronounced though there's a lot of synergies and maybe we can talk about that as the podcast goes yeah, on I would love to I would sure. love to yeah so um, and a little bit about your background where, where mm. were you before have you how long have you been at city what, what did you do beforehand I've been at city for 15 years the the last two roles that I've had were HR head roles mm. so the HR head for the global commercial bank here at city and then prior to that for the US consumer business mm. uh, just after the crisis and I moved to New York in 2010 to, to take on, on those types of roles. So this is a departure for what I've, from what I've been doing the last eight years to move back into learning. I was in learning years and years ago as a facilitator, and I'm glad to be back home. It's a fun, it's a fun job. Cool. Interesting. So you were an actual, so you were a teacher, so you got up and... I did. Um, in the securities world, you have to have a, a past licensing exams, mm-hmm. so the Series 7 and that type of thing to, to trade... Uh, securities. Mm. And so I I don't know how this happened because I'm really not that great at tests, but I, I did well on those mm. tests when I first started working. And they said, uh, would you teach this to other people because our pass rates are so bad? Mm. Uh, I was at Fidelity Investments at the time in 1994 or something like that. And that's how I got into this thing. Mm. And did you did you enjoy the teaching? I mean, it, was that is that kind of where your passion comes I did. From I loved the teaching. Uh, I was actually a musician prior to that, so I was I liked the the stage and I kind of understood that gig yeah. and I I took to it I took to it pretty quickly. Mm. Mm. Cool. 
Tim and I both actually met each other and started standing up in front of rooms teaching people. We, we started a business in China, so kind of a similar thing where we were started in front of a room and now don't really get to do that very much. Learning doesn't, for us at least, doesn't have that element, but I do miss it sometimes. But at the same time, actually, that still informs everything. Like everything. there's a certain, certain feeling that happens when the room clicks and you're facilitating that we try to figure out what that feeling feels like when it happens digitally. It's so true. You, can, you can't quantify it, but there's a real energy that's either there or it's not. Right. Uh, yeah. Cool. Okay, great. So I want to just run through, we're, we're going to talk about kind of two big topics today. Um, I think we're going to start really big, kind of talking with you, Cameron, about the future of work and what it, what it what's happening, some technology trends and other things that are happening inside the global economy that are changing the nature of employment, that are changing how we develop employees. And I think your perspective from those, that culture performance management learning, really interesting lens to look at those questions. And then from there, I think we're going to go deeper into this question of what does that mean for the CLO role, for the chief learning officer role? How is that changing? How is it going to continue to change? And, and what do you see as the kind of future of that of that role? So I want to start, but let's start at that 80,000 foot level. What are what are some things, like, so when people talk about the future work, this is a topic we, we hear a lot, and there's a kind of mixed bag of sort of mushiness to also people who are just making predictions that seem ridiculous. Um, right. Where do you land on like what's what's ha- clearly we're in a moment of big change. Mm-hmm. What's what do you think is driving that, and and what's what does the future of work look like? Well, the main engine behind the change is the internet, right? And the development of better computing power and storage solutions. Everything techn- technological is you can find almost every root of some of, of the big issues. You can trace it back to that, and I think between here and. Neuralink, which is uh, Elon's uh, way he, he's talking about brain-computer interfaces, we can, there's some level of, predict, of predictability between here and there. Now, after that, if you want to geek out later, we can talk about that too. But the, I think that's the main driver. And to your point, there's everyone talking about future of work, and there are many elements. I've kind of boiled it down to three broad categories to help me think through this. One is technology. So inside of technology, I think about blockchain and AI and machine learning and all that. So we can go down that route. The second big factor are demographics, mainly uh, people living longer lives. And and the way that that will transform the way people educate themselves and the way they come to work. And the third big um, prong is the environment and scarcity and, and that type of thing. So when I look through those three lenses, there are, and, 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 and the way I do my role, there are some things that come into focus, and, and I'm, I'm sure we'll hit on a lot of those as we move through this. Hmm. I mean, technology is actually where everyone starts, so I want to start, let's go backwards. Let's start with environment. What, what do you mean by that? Is that climate change? Is that just a general sort of sense of, oh, you know, there's you know, population, I guess that ties into the demographics. So when you think about the environmental question, how, that, how does that... Well, I think that ties in uh, closely, too, with, with demographics. I wasn't sure where to put uh, nationalism and the corporates, corporate, big corporations' role in driving the world. So, but, okay. but if you look at climate change and you think about uh, how 
the, the Fortune 500, really everybody, but the big players are going to have to get involved in the social political narrative. That's where I think the intersections start to come to us in, in the big firm and as CLOs. Uh, our firms will have a point of view on how they do environment and how they play in that space and how they play in the geopolitical view uh, sense. And we have to have a, uh, therefore, educate our people on the inside as to how to respond to that. And it creates interesting dynamics. It does, yeah. And it's very, com- I mean, it's a, that's a sort of, certainly if you look back, and we're probably jumping ahead to the role of the CLO here. But yeah, it, that is a big change, right, for the CLO to have that. And, and we've seen that a lot. We work with some oil and gas companies. And there's a lot of pressure to figure out this question because when you look at employee engagement, you know, if you're an oil and gas company, employee engagement, you can't not talk about some of these issues. It's it's right at the center of the future of who you are and how you retain your employees. And that's falling off into a CLO who maybe, you know, let's just say it's a new it's a new type of responsibility. So how do you how do you like what's your role? What's the unique perspective or role that a CLO can bring in helping to kind of flesh out and answer some of these questions? Well, you asked the question specifically for, as a CLO, but so my answer, I, let me just preface it by saying most of us as CLOs are probably on the HR operating committee of our firms. So uh, that's, there's a role we play in this uh, and, 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 and a lot of us speak to our boards, at least I do. So my answer to you is predicated on those two realities for me and how we do the, do it here. Uh, the, the social narrative, let's just start there. To your point, and you're spot on, uh, it can polarize your talent base. And so communicating what your values are to your employees and watching that either resonate or not resonate and how do you respond to it if it doesn't. And that, that's a whole new dynamic that we're working with kind of on the fly. I don't have a handbook yet. I just know that uh, transparency is important. Listening to what they, how their reactions uh, bloom are important. Um, but it, it's, a new, it's, it's a new talent attraction or um, repelling strategy. Right. Right? Right. Yeah. When you think about, too, and in my shop, you, you brought up oil and gas. It's a wonderful example. In banking, th- there are at least two examples I can give you. Like one is that we fund or don't fund a lot of things, right? And, and even oil and gas, and people have a point of view on that. We at City took a, a point of view on gun control uh, and, and how we were going to play in that space. And that, again, divided, divided is a little dramatic, but that there was some reaction to that. Yeah. So the role of the CLO is um, in, in all the core leadership programs that you do, all of your communications with which you're involved, your role as an HR operating committee member and, and how you opine on, on those issues and how to communicate them, that stuff matters. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, we used to, I guess we've, there's, this is a trend that's been going on for a long time. And there, there was like, I don't know, I, I imagine sometime in like the 50s or 60s where you would just go into work and nobody talked about politics or religion or whatever. Like it was just off limits mm-hmm. and the corporation wasn't expected to talk about it really, mm-hmm. except within the limits of its purview. And that's obviously been changing a lot mm-hmm. recently. You think it's going to continue to move in that direction? Hundred. Why? Hundred Why? What do you think's driving that? I mean, that's well, a very to, complicated to, question. Well, right? it, there, at least two. There's a hundred things, but yeah. at least two things. One, look, the transparency that the internet has provided is, it's changed everything. Yeah. Like, you can't. Information wants to be free, right. and back in the fifties, you kind of could control it, mm-hmm. at least for a little while. <laughs> it took a long time for things to leak out and around. So that's one thing. The second thing is that the role of government and and 
and big corporations are beginning to become enmeshed more and more, um, particularly back to climate change. So that's the easiest one to look at. And I think a corporation that doesn't get involved in the narrative, that's a liability for the firm. I, I think consumers want to understand the social DNA of the company with whom they work. Love that. Tim, do you have anything? I'm going to jump to another one. Any, anything you want to throw in there? No, no. I think it's. I think it's all. It's all. You know, it's incredibly interesting in delving into some of these kind of underlying aspects of why the world of work is changing. Is is a, It's super interesting. Um, it reminds me of. Um, I, I watched a video over the weekend, a short clip of an interview with David Bowie, and he was talking about um, the impact of the internet. And this was in 1999. Uh, it was an interview with Jeremy Paxman. He was talking about actually the artist and audience and and he was actually talking in the context of content provider and content consumer how the internet was radically changing the relationship between those different people and he said this super interesting thing which i think is very interesting for the world of work which is that he was talking about how the future the 21st century will be played out in the gray area between those two things between artist and audience or content provider and content consumer and I think there's, a, there's an interesting parallel there with the world of work. And you might think about the, the gray area between employer and employee and how that's kind of playing out as well. And I think that's a that's a part of it as well. But all those lines have become very blurred. And I think it's, it'd be interesting to discuss and hear from Cameron a little bit more about that gray area between, you know, those previously very distinct groups of employer and employee. I think the David Bowie wavelength is, to your point, very similar to what we're talking about here, this gray area. And the internet's given rise to this unified voice of the, in this particular conversation, the employee. Like they can aggregate their responses in a more powerful, transparent, and fast way. And so, you know, where in the past, you know, the, the employer, back to our 1950s thing, had most of the, the power, and they kind of told you what to think and told you what to do. Um, society at large is, to, to, to David Bowie's points, moving the other, the other way, where there, there will be a dialogue between two people or two groups. Um, you don't, so now you just have to figure out how to have it. <laughs> but it's not a one-way thing anymore. Right, right. And the Internet is a great dissolver of clear boundaries, right? Like these sort of, the, I don't, we shouldn't probably over idealize the 1950s corporation, but <laughs> one thing it did seems probably pretty fair to say is that it was vastly more hierarchical and the roles were more stable and what you, what it meant to get a particular role and be in that role didn't change as quickly. I think one of the things that's so tricky about roles across an organization, I know you guys are dealing with this all the time is there's a huge fluidity in what it means to be something. What does it mean to be an HR professional at City today mm -hmm. versus five years ago, mm -hmm. and what are different roles? So there is this kind of, there's that, there's that gray area that's created. There's also a sense of maybe confusion or complexity or th that speed of dissolution of, of stable boundaries that's creating a lot of complexity for someone who's in charge of performance, culture, and learning especially. Right. Yeah. Right. Everything is semi-permeable. Like there's, there's no like boundaries. Anytime I hear about a boundary or a silo and, and people speaking of it as if it's fixed, I get nervous because nothing is fixed and nothing is completely impermeable. Um, further to our, I, I like this 1950s thing. It's going to come in handy later if we talk about the super future. But the, to your point, you could get in a role 
it, it would stay fairly stable. And one of the reasons, one of the many reasons is, uh, but the biggest reason, again, is back to internet and transparency and, um, boy, it, it, and reverse engineering. You can, you can duplicate a, a, a person's competitive advantage more quickly now. Um, when you study competitive advantage that, uh, approaches that were, were, were written prior to 19, uh, pr prior to the internet's proliferation, a lot of those don't, don't work. This, this idea of barrier to entry has been, uh, <laughs> redone completely. Yeah. I think it's good. Like I, I, not that it matters what I think, whether it's good or bad, but whether I think it's good or bad or not, it doesn't even matter. It is our reality. We better get on with it. Right, right. Well, how did I want to talk? I mean, one thing that that's, must be extra tricky at City is you guys are truly, truly a global firm. So mm -hmm. this everything you have to think about those questions of culture, those questions of you know the so you know the future of work. It when you throw that through the lens of how many countries? I, I mean, more than a hundred countries, I think. More right? than a hundred countries and several product lines. We have. A, a B2B business and a B2C business. Right. So there are many lenses, to your point. Both of those product lines work differently, and in each country, yeah. they work differently. So depending on which lenses you stack together, you get a different answer. Right, right. I, I mean, I think just, just looking purely through the global lens, if I think back probably when you first joined City, and I think, like, you know, Tim and I used to live in China. We lived in China 15 years ago. We, I lived in China from 2000 to 2008. And during that time, there was a sense of like globalization marching on, these big global firms, which are getting more and more tightly integrated. It all felt, it wasn't easy, no, but it wasn't, it didn't feel, it just felt like it had a clear direction. But, you know, with Brexit and all of these other things now, it feels like that process doesn't feel as simple or as logical or that the future is as clear as, as I maybe would have thought it was like 10 years ago, just mm -hmm. to kind of like march towards this global mm -hmm. future. Um, how how did how does that complicate your life? That that question of kind of what's happening in the bigger global scene, and and how does that impact the way you think about these questions at City? This is this isn't going to be very compelling. This answer it's it's the first thing that came to my mind is that you the trick at working at a place like this or places like this is uh, knowing what to try to control and what to let happen at the last mile, right? You, this I, because to your earlier point, we, we're in constant shape-shifting mode. You have to be oh, on, on some things. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you what you don't shape-shift on, ethics. Mm -hmm. right? There are some foundational things that irrespective of product line and all those things, like you, you know what the core is. But beyond that, you have to be incredibly responsive to the last mile mm -hmm. and not have duplication and, you know, a company that acts like 50 companies or 100 companies. Yeah. So finding that balance for me is the daily challenge. Like, mm -hmm. Okay, how, how many things do I let bloom? How am I sensing what's happening? How can I respond quickly um, and not sit on innovation and growth? Um, and and that, that's sort of the mantra for mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. I love that. It's the only way to man I, managing it. Just even that term, managing it, right. is not, it's not the right term. You it's an ecosystem you tend. Right. That's what you do. Right. And so you're kind of, you're seeing things blossom that look good. You're seeing things blossom that look like duplication maybe. And that need. so you're, is it just, how do you kind of, are there, how are you making those choices, I, I guess? One is just general management. There's a lot of that. 
Yep. No one ever talks about it because it's not very snazzy, but that's a lot. Number two is uh, information and knowledge, you know, curation and distribution. Mm -hmm. We'll just call it that. Yep. And then the third vector that I don't hear many people talk about is uh, behavior change architect, mm -hmm. which is very different than knowledge dissemination. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason I have to tell you those three things is because I can answer your question better now. In the circle of information, curation, and distribution, the way you do that in a dynamic environment is that you don't, you have to understand what the new dynamic of control is. Mm -hmm. And so the way we've defined it is we have practice areas, things that we know will be blooming in some way. So innovation, for example, or digital literacy. And we let the system actually work for us. We watch what's blooming. We have sensing mechanisms built in. We see what's happening. We will codify three or four of these things as pilots mm. and watch everybody around the world watches those pilots. And then we'll start to center in on guiding principles, specific vendor relationships, mm. uh, guiding you know, things that, well, we can have innovation and growth and freedom, but where we don't overspend and duplicate and become out of control. Mm. And so that's a structural change that most CLOs either are making or they should be or, or they will eventually. Mm. And what about on the behavioral change architecture? Well, this when you open up the door as a CLO to being a behavior change architect, the entire job changes dramatically mm. because now, um, as every CLO knows that's listening to this, uh, a piece of training does not a behavior change make. <laughs> it's... Uh, it, it, to the contrary, uh, there's uh, to any major behavior change is normally a, pr a product. Uh, you need a systems approach to it. Mm. So to change a person's behavior, an easy example is you probably need a piece of training, a compensation design change, and maybe even a leadership and or structural change. And the combination of those create the conditions for the behavior change that you seek. So when a CLO starts to think of themselves that way, of changing behaviors or changing cultural norms, now you are doing life differently. I'll give you one easy example, is that the way you work with your HR colleagues, your compensation colleagues and your recruiting colleagues changes dramatically because you have to partner up to get the system attuned to what you want the outcome to be. It's a different way. It's more of an OD kind of a life than it is a pre-internet training person's life. Right. And so what, yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, some of these things you're talking about here about like how you pilot and test and sense what's going on and then and then maybe roll it out larger and how you how you work on change behavior. All of that makes sense to me and seems very doable and achievable in an organization of a certain size. But you're in a CLO role of an organization that's a very small number of CLOs would have its as, as large an organization as you're working in. So I'm, I'm wondering about the unique challenges of the, the scale of city that, that that presents. I mean, you know, those things, like I said, those things seem quite doable in, you know, relatively small organizations or even medium-sized organizations. But at the scale of city, what are the, some of those unique challenges at that wait, scale? Wait, but do they make, can we even do that in our own organization? <laughs> Well, exactly. They're, you know, you know. I, just, I was trying to write back. We can, but know, it's hard. Like, there's twenty five of us, and it's hard. Twenty people is tough. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that's a, I. Which part do you think is hard? Exactly. This is a wonderful conversation, by the way. This is fun. Uh, 
Well, I think the harder thing for us, I mean, so behavior change architecture for okay. us, okay? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we basically, Tim and I, control all of those things ourselves. We are our own HR function. We have a sense of compensation. We are the learning people. Mm-hmm. But I don't always know what the right answer is. Like, I, the harder, so yes, I have the levers. Mm-hmm. I can switch them. But human beings are complicated. And even in this context of 25 people where we still know everyone pretty well individually as people, it's still very hard for us to necessarily, and, and you know, one of the things about being a startup is you have to change a lot. So people, one of the, the difficulties of us is up being like, hey, remember that whole thing six months ago when we all got so excited about that thing? Well, we're <laughs> not, we can't really call it that anymore because that didn't work and we have to call it something else. Mm-hmm. And so you have to change again. So there's fatigue. So I, I don't know, even for us, figuring out how to press those buttons in the right way mm-hmm. is tricky. And it's so I don't know hard. how you do it when you magnify it times... Well, you make a bazillion mistakes. Mm. And the way I talk about it as if it's simple. Mm. I, we should just talk about how complicated this is, mm. how many misses there are. Mm. Uh, I deal with broad outlines. Mm. Like I, I mm. can't get down into the detail of which vendor is teaching what thing in which country for mm. which product. Right. I mean, I could. But we're, in, a way, in some ways, it might be easier for me because I'm, I'm sanding off bits and pushing clay a mm. different way, but I'm not... I'm not drawing a super, super precise thing. You, you just don't mm. at this level. Right. Um, but I've worked in startups uh, from your size to about 200 employees, and I watched that growth. And it, it is different. I, I think the fun thing about that size of a company, though, is that you, you still have people that can sense the edges, mm. and you need to be sort of programmatic about how you pull that in. You still make a ton of mistakes, and people have to reconstitute themselves day after day. But the fun thing about having a smaller uh, organization is that an idea that you have on Monday morning could feasibly flow through the place by the afternoon. Mm. And, yeah. and that's great. Yeah. And that that's a competitive advantage. You're so nimble. Yeah. yeah. So uh, there's a lot of assets that you have right. that, that are liabilities for us. Right, right. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, no, we can. We can have an idea... We can, I mean, I don't know about by the afternoon. Well, it depends on the idea, but sometimes, yeah. But I do, we do, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to, I'm, I'm interested about, I want to go back for a second to go to the behavioral change architecture. And now, mm-hmm. so we're, I think we're kind of in the role of the CLO there. Yep. How, I mean, you came, you came from an HR background, like, so you've been in HR roles the last two roles. So that's got to help you in helping to do that. For, it does. For, for a CLO who doesn't necessarily have that comp and benefit background or hasn't looked at some of these issues, or even for you, are there, have, how do you make the case or how do you, how do you kind of cooperate diplomatically with the other folks who need to be involved in some of these big change? Is it, is it obvious or do you have, to, is there a kind of persuasion and pushback? And it seems like there's a lot, there's probably a lot of competing interests and perspectives and mindsets going on to be able to bring those things together. Mm, yeah. There are, you're spot on. It's a terrific question. The, um, gosh, it's hard to answer that succinctly. I, sometimes you have very enlightened managers who understand who are systems thinkers by nature they understand that the magnitude of the problem is probably a multivariant one that needs to be solved in that way um, I would say that's unfortunately not the great majority of them uh, I'm guessing that the CLOs that are listening will, will love this next sentence most of the time what you get from a, a leader of a function or a region or a product would be like I have this problem I need you to do this training to fix it and 
they have varying levels of receptivity to discussing the broader problem. The approach I've taken when I was in uh, learning advisor roles was I, I would try to look at it more broadly, but if they just demanded that I do a learning thing, we would do a learning thing only, and six months later, guess what? Same problem. And at that point, the door would be open. So, well, we did this thing. It didn't work. Can we zoom out and look mm. at this more, mm. you know, at a higher altitude? And then they're more receptive mm. to, to doing it. Um, as it relates to your other question, well, what if you don't have an HR background to, to do this? I would say two things. One, you've probably been a manager. If you're, if you're a CLO now, you've been managing people for a while. So you may not understand... HR technically, but you understand it at a gut level because you've been managing people for a while. So lean on that. And there's just a helpful little diagram that I use. It's on the internet, of course, everything is, called the Galbraith Star, G-A-L-B-R-A-I-T-H, Galbraith Star, which is just basically a little depiction of, of a system. And, and the, here's the simple narrative. It says, hey, um, you need to align the following. I'm going to get this wrong, of course. You, got, you need to align the following five things. Strategy is the top. Uh, processes and policy. Uh, your talent. Your reward system. And I think your structure. Hmm. Hmm. So you can do this without a back HR okay. background. You, you kind of know this stuff. Yeah, I mean, gut. one of the things we, and I think we, we've done a little bit of this with City. We've definitely done it in some other places. When we've gotten that, like, go send a learning, go, go, go through a learning thing and a problem that's obviously bigger than that. Mm -hmm. One of the things we found successful is like, okay, but as a part of that learning thing, we're going to actually ask these people what else is holding them back. Brilliant. And bring some of that data back so that the learning can help to if you especially with social learning, if it's done right and you can get the comments back, you can sort of say, like, remember how we said it might be broader? Well, let's look at this. Eighty seven percent of the people actually said that their rewards push them to this to hit a quota of some kind. Right. That is exactly the behavior you're trying to to change. So, look, the, the people themselves are telling you that. And I think right. maybe that's one one way that technology because I think we, we've talked about technology as a sort of scary thing of dissolving boundaries, but it also, by creating transparency and producing all this data, it can be very, very helpful in helping to drive some of these outcomes. Right? I agree. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I, th I think technology is wonderful. I certainly didn't mean to demonize it in any way. And I don't know if your example was just figurative, or, or, or but, but I, funny enough, I, I was going to say earlier, with every problem I start like by following the money. Hmm. If there's a financial incentive to do the thing we don't want them to do, change that first. You'll get the quickest return. Yeah. No, it was not figurative. Yeah. You've seen <laughs> I, it. I didn't pick that by example. You've seen yeah. it. No. Exactly. I mean, we, we, we've worked. This is a big problem. We do a lot of marketing transformation work. And marketing is one of these places where, you know, the, the, the individual role, had like that, the, the segmentation into tight little tiny cubicles doesn't really work anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but that's where the incentives are. So like the marketers are incentivized to get downloads of a white paper, right? And it's like no one is checking to see if people who download that white paper actually ever do anything else with the organization. And it doesn't matter that just that information just dies. But because the incentive is around the download of the white paper, well, sure enough, <laughs> the white paper is getting downloaded, but no one's buying the product. And so there's like that. That's a simple example of like, OK, well, there's something bigger in there that you need to try to uncover. And learning can be one way of 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 helping to uncover that when mm -hmm. it's when it's done well. It's a great example. Um, okay, so let's let's we didn't actually when we're talking about future of work, we didn't really actually get yeah. to technology yet. Yeah. So let's I know you I know you're thinking about 
these issues a lot. So tell me, what are what are some of the big trends you're looking at now? And then also, I think this is our moment to also look forward a little bit. What are what are some of the big things you see maybe on the horizon that that are gonna be have a really big impact on the way we work? Okay, um, let's do three: uh, AI, machine learning, that type of thing. Why that matters as it relates to contextualization. Then adaptive learning. That's a very specific technology. And then a little bit further out on the edge, we'll talk about bio, biological mm. things that are happening. Mm. In the very near term, right, meaning in the next five years, the machine learning, artificial intelligence, whatever, you know, the, people use these terms interchangeably, robotic process automation, they're all kind of sort of in the same thing. That, that will be a factor, right? Skills are being replaced by machines. Uh, you have to upskill people and to do that in a programmatic way is important. We have a system here at City, and I'll be happy to talk to, to you about that. I don't think that there's this apocalyptic half of the world is unemployed thing 2021. Uh, we were reading that kind of thing before, but but to say that skills aren't evolving and shaping and, and that there aren't implications for CLOs is foolish. Um, Right, because I think there there was a, maybe ten years ago when you talked about AI, it was like HAL and the like you know or Matrix style whatever mm. something like that. In fact, it's been more mundane, but in some ways more profound. So it's like the call center is a place where I think about with AI a lot, where a lot of routine functions at the call center can now reliably be done by a chat bot or something like that. And then, but there's something also the interesting side effect of that is the human beings left over. Have get all the complicated, all the messy stuff. Mm -hmm. Basically, is that? Do you think that is that is that a thing that we'll continue to see with mm -hmm. AI? Yes, yeah. generally speaking, at the yeah. broadest list, I do think routinized, like high volume, low judgment activities, you'll see those go away, yeah. and so the human can deal with the higher function items. Right. Now, the net effect on the number of actual human beings you need to do the higher function work remains to be seen. There's no way, uh, but but the. Initial dialogue was so binary. It's like this thing goes away and all those people are unemployed. Hmm. And there's, what are you going to do? But what we're seeing is a lot of those folks move into other professions and or move up the sort of the Maslow's hierarchy of you know, sort of a, as a, a complexity hierarchy and they can deal with that more complex work. And, hmm. and it's actually beneficial for a lot of the human beings that are impacted. Hmm. And what, is, I mean, what, are, what are you guys doing now or what are you preparing for to help people make especially folks who's in that more routinized function to make that transition into mm -hmm. kind of higher complexity level stuff okay I, I i will tell you i will start this answer by telling you the big mistake that i made mm -hmm. early on is that i thought like a fool that the that the the specific roles that were going away and the specific roles that were coming online were crystal clear mm. to hiring managers. So I can talk to people and say, how many of X role are going away and this many of, of new X, new Y role are coming on? When in fact, the, no, and I wondered, why can't I get this answer? Because I know all the people to talk to. Um, there were a few answers, but mainly what I learned was you better start it at the skill level. So what skills are going away and what skills are coming online? And those may or may not be manifest currently in a whole role. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And in fact, almost certainly aren't because the skills connected to the old role and the new, like, th that's kind of how it's all right. Yeah, it's not clean yet. Yeah. Right? So yeah. it's just, so it might be a 25% of your role that's mm. going away. I mean, and so, but as soon as we got past that, um, 
things got a little easier because you can roughly say, you used the call center earlier, that these types of call center agents dealing with this type of things, those, those are going away. So maybe we want to offer that demo, that demographic, um, just some basic, I'm, I'm making it up now, mm -hmm. Python coding or right. some basic other mm -hmm. kind of thing that's more re relevant. But how do you do that at scale, mm -hmm. right? Uh, that's That's been our our challenge. So what we're doing is we have three pilots running in different parts of the world that are very organic in nature. And by organic, here's what I mean. We have made available to our employee base three tiers of future-oriented skill uh, opportunities. One is free, available to all. And we watch the people that work through that layer because that's indicative of the type of human being that might have success in the next world. Mm. Then there's a second layer, more complicated, available to most, mm. that's a little more expensive and more specialized. Mm. And then we watch the people that are moving through that. And then the final tier, and it might be three or four tiers when we're done with this, but it's more expensive, highly customized for people that are that earned it. Mm. And then they there's a nomination process. And, and now we're talking about, you know, maybe paying some significant amount per employee to, to reskill them mm. into a new, more uh, relevant set of skills. Mm. The thing I like most about it is that it, it is organic. You can watch who's doing it. Uh, you, you can almost have a selection process by nature of, of watching who's moving right. through it. And it, I mean, that actually makes concrete, you know, I think people talk about continuous learning and you need to be curiosity and so on. But it's, I mean, what that is showing me is that you guys are kind of systematically saying there's a, the future at city is a learning centric future. So if we see you making the effort, we see you putting in the time and effort to work through these things, there's a path for you mm -hmm. here. Is that, is that fair? Is that? It is that, yes, we're, we're trying to get that message out explicitly. Okay. And this particular example, what you see are the, 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 the actual people that, that, you know, get on with it. Right. It's not easy. Yeah. And we want the bar to be high. Yeah. Because the future bar is high. Yeah. So adaptive learning. Tell me which, what, what do you, well, first of all, that's one of these words that can mean different things to different people. So what, what does that mean to you and, and what's the promise of that? So the adaptive learning definition that we use and the technologies we're piloting, the, these are the technologies that as you move through the learning event. Mm. It's adapting to you on the fly. Mm. So as you, once the system picks up that you really do know a lot about X, yeah. it sends you less of X to learn. Mm. And if you're really weak on Y, it sends you a lot more of Y to learn mm. real time. Mm. So no one person's learning journey mm. is exactly the same. Mm. So the promise for us at scale is, one is obvious. Uh, if I can, if I have one million training hours of thing to get through, mm -hmm. if I can get that down to 950,000 mm -hmm. hours, that's a big number, mm -hmm. a big savings, mm -hmm. without trading off the second variable, which is retention, right. because right. It, it's over-indexing on the things you need, so you actually retain the things you need to retain and practice the things you need to practice. Mm -hmm. So that's the big promise. Mm -hmm. you know, there's a big chasm between here and the Holy Grail. Right. But the technology is out there. Mm. It's good enough to pilot yeah. at our scale. Um, so we're, we're we're learning as we go. We, like I said, we have two pilots, and neither one of them are turning out exactly like we thought they would.
Right. And we, we, we have a long experience of looking at it. And when we, and we've looked at other companies who've brought us in to look at it, we were working at a, a large textbook publisher who showed us their adaptive learning system. And the thing that always struck me was that at some point it, it creates this demand for a huge amount of content that is difficult, that nobody was working on the content model. So like at this publisher, they had this like really fancy engine and they were showing me something for like math textbooks. Mm -hmm. But what I noticed is as it got progressively deeper and more customized, the content got worse and worse mm -hmm. because they, when you're, you know, down in the tails, the tail end of the content, you're now talking about hundreds of thousands of assets in order to personalize. And they didn't have a model and didn't quite know how to produce it. So there's that. That's one challenge I think that people are still trying to work through, which is like... You've hit the nail on the head. The, it turns out the engine itself is the easy part. Right. It's the designing of the assets and reaching for the right assets at the right time. And, and obviously, to make it you know, customizable for each of the 200,000 people, the number of assets you have to have per course is monumental. Right. So part of this for us is is literal. We want to literally use that technology as it matures. Mm -hmm. But we're also trying to group. I, I have no doubt that over time that will be the way of the future mm -hmm. in learning. Mm -hmm. So I've got to groove the new, what's the new designer look like? Yep. What, you know, how, how do you, they're new people designing in new ways. And mm -hmm. if it's not productizable at scale for f four years, I, I need to at least have some of the DNA in right. the place before it comes online. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think for us, it points... Oh, yeah, I'd be interested in Cameron, what, what you think about what areas that technology can be applied to. Because that's the other thing that we've thought when we've looked at it, that it's it's great for certain things, but perhaps for other things, it's not so great. Yeah, and I'd be particularly interested to know what you think it wouldn't be great for. You know, where would you not use that kind of technology? Well, the, the types of things we're using it for now, and I think it'll work fine in this context, are pretty binary things. Compliance training, yeah. for example, right? They're... There's just black and white, a little bit of gray here and there we can do with case studies, but, but pretty straightforward. And we can do scenario-based learning in a, in a, for a compliance you know, piece, and it makes it more interesting and the concepts tend to stick. I, I think really gray area things, uh, negotiation and things that are where you have to sense your way through things, I don't know how well it would work in that yeah. space. Right. That's how that's what we would say. Yeah. So it's like, you know, math. Yeah. There's a right answer. Mm -hmm. There's a wrong answer. And you can also get you can learn a lot by the things that people get wrong mm -hmm. when they're moving through a series of math problems. Oh, well, that indicates that they don't understand this concept about long division or whatever. Right. Um, I'm going to indicate my poor math skills by basically referring all to like <laughs> sixth and seventh grade math topics. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but then, but, but if it's even something like leadership, it's like, well, leadership, what, what, you know, how do you, there is no, there's no long division in leadership. That, that, I don't know if that's no, sense. No, I yeah. agree with you because anytime you get in like human dynamics are tricky thing. So leadership is a wonderful, I would take a complete, in fact, we are, we're taking a completely different approach with leadership. Yeah. I wouldn't use adaptive for that. Right. Um, okay, cool. So that's adaptive. Um, I bio. want to talk about bio. What does that even mean? I'm not even sure. Is that uh, like chips in the brain? No, that's more Neuralink, oh, okay, which we'll get sorry. to later. That's okay. cuckoo stuff. But, yeah. I, but you know, I, I actually do think that's the next frontier. But on the, on the near horizon, this is easily in the next 10 years. Um, like we, we're, we're getting smarter about like we can read brain waves and see when and how people are interacting with content. Mm -hmm. And so you can already map we've already done this, uh, troughs and spikes of, a, of your intervention on a 
group of people. Like mm-hmm. you literally hook up the brain thing. You can see what piece of content really fires them up and what mm-hmm. doesn't. So that's one version of bio. Mm-hmm. The other version of bio that is interesting, not nearly ready for prime time, but sensing hormone levels, blood pressure, and other biometrics in real time when you're making real decisions like trading stock and mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. You can, w- there are already good defendable studies that show when you're operating at peak and mm-hmm. off peak. Mm-hmm. And having those, those data available to you as you move through your day, mm-hmm. your hour, could be beneficial. Mm-hmm. So it's like, go, wait, I'm about to dump this stock, but I haven't had lunch. Maybe. Maybe a bit. Or I did just have lunch. I did just have lunch. Mm, Yeah. Interesting. I've, I've, uh, you know, I've been at this for X amount of hours straight and my attention span, the gaps between the brain firing a certain way, which indicates that I'm on point Mm. is, is, is lagging. So I need to go do something and maybe not make a big decision. Mm. It's that type of thing that Mm. is, uh, not too far away. And by not too far, I mean, it's already here, but is it? usable at scale, not for a while. Right. That's, it's, that's really interesting. I, I mean, I was actually, I was talking to a, a guy who runs learning for a kind of a technology-focused advertising company, digital marketing company. He has about 20,000 employees. And he was talking about this survey they did that was like this, it was a really in-depth psychological profile. So you did this thing and it came back with this like extraordinary amount of information about yourself, including, and it had, it was like things about your parents and your relationship with your children, like all of this stuff that they were giving people back. And he said it backfired a little bit because people were kind of like, it's not really the, I didn't want you guys to know this much about me. And in fact, I didn't actually want to know this much about myself. So there were employees who kind of were like, whoa, this is a little TMI. And I wonder if the bio stuff is sort of like, if there's a, well, there, obviously there's some degree where we want to help people may be aware and awake to behaviors and mm-hmm. things. But is there, a, I wonder if there's a line. So he, he felt like they had actually accidentally kind of crossed the line and, and generated a little bit of rebellion from people who were kind of like, Get out of my head, man. Yeah, man. It's the creep zone. We're, so, yes, for sure. Yeah. And, and, and do you share these data just with the, with the employee or do, or, or do you look at it too? And right. when the you look at it too comes, like the employer, yeah. now we're way into creepy. You've crossed a boundary. Right. Um, but, you know, even now, since you brought up creepiness, I, I just love this thing because this is, <laughs> is that if you, if you look at human behavior through the even their purchasing habits, we can, or you know, because you're in marketing, you've yeah. dealt with a, you can tell buying behavior with a level of precision that's even unknown to the buyer. Yeah. And if you target market things too close, then you're like, this is, how do you even know this is creepy? Right. There's the famous example of Target, uh, this was years ago, where they started, I think it was diaper coupons, and they started to over-index on, on baby-related things to people that, that patterns expectant mothers before the mothers ever told their husbands or their partners. And us. so, I mean, it's, we, we already are having to deal with this. How far do we go thing? Yeah. It's only going to get, depending on how you look at it, worse or better. Right. And there's this, as learning professionals, it's this unique thing where that information is very relevant to your own progress as an individual, as a learner. So we kind of have a, you know, it's, historically that's what learning has done we've helped you find these things out about yourself we've given you this data that helps you learn but now we can do so much that maybe yeah it's it's a sort of a new well we talk about contextualization a lot Mm. here because that is the game like Mm. how 
how contextual can you get a specific knowledge asset? You know, mm-hmm. What is it? Can you get it to them at the right time in the right mode? Yeah. And the technology, you can extrapolate from here to the future and see that, to your point, you will eventually get it to a place where you have to turn up or town, turn down mm-hmm. levels because it, can, it, can, it will eventually get incredibly precise. Right. Like right, right now... Uh, it's not, yeah. you know, it's, but, but it, it's going that way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. I wonder, um, just, just to touch on one point on this, I, I wonder, you know, when we talk about this idea of contextualization and how refined you can get this serving of particular content assets that help people. And even then into that world of kind of, um, you know, monitoring how people are, you know, their heart rates and their stress levels or whatever to help them make decisions. I wonder how much your robbing them or, or um, not robbing them, that's too strong a word, but but um, n- not letting them develop other essential skills because of those that way that you're serving that content. So being able to, you know, be more resourceful and find things for yourselves and be able to make decisions more intuitively or understand all the different things rather than relying on a on a bit of technology there. I always I always reminds me of at satnavs, I always try not to use them because I like to know, figure out, especially if I'm in a new city, I like to figure out where I am and be able to like, you know, map out the city in my head and then be able to work my way around it. Uh, and it feels a little bit like that with the, with these other new technologies that you may be, uh, people may be losing some other skills as a, as a result of that kind of, that kind of support or that kind of learning. You're absolutely right, and they will be, and it is scary, mm. and it will make muscles atrophy that <laughs> weren't being atrophied prior to that technology. Yeah. Um, so uh, you look on that negative wavelength. You know, the other thing I'm I'm concerned about already is that I have to personally fight very hard to not feed on my own profile. Now, here's what I mean by that, right? Mm. And you've seen it with the elections, for example. It, the AI feeds you what it thinks you want to be fed based on your previous whatever. And so you start to consume, like everything looks the same, everything agrees. Mm. And that's a huge issue because for at least two reasons. One, it's always backward looking. It's based on what you just did. Mm. And second, it walls you off to a whole new world of possibilities you better have your eyes open to. Mm. And that's a huge risk for the world. Mm. That one freaks me out more than our uh, robotic process automation, yeah. actually. Well, yeah. clearly. I mean, that one is having big, clearly the big, big ripple impact right now. Yeah. Okay. I want to go, and we're going to come back to Neuralink. I want to go, actually, I want to co- ask a couple of the questions about performance and culture, if I can. Yeah. Yeah. So performance management is something we, we, so we do a lot of like work around educating HR folks, including with HR folks here. And we've been looking at, we didn't, I've actually been in this project in Nomadic the last three months looking at the future of performance management. And there are two big things that, that we keep coming into that where the old systems are running into problems. And I wonder if you guys are dealing with these and how you're dealing with them. One is that the one-off or, you know, the annual performance review the, is, is kind of a dinosaur. It feels like a dinosaur, like something that doesn't really make that much sense anymore. And, and so people are trying to move to this continuous the culture of continuous performance. And then the other is this question of teams versus individuals. And that's like a, a big, a kind of a bigger, bigger than just performance. But so often our performance these days is dependent on our team members and who, and, and we're off and the, who is on that team is ever shifting. So different projects were in different places. And so having this kind of focus in on the individual is a little bit 
inaccurate or unfair to the way that work actually happens for mm-hmm. folks. Are those issues that you guys are struggling with and, and how or or have you solved them? Uh, and how how are you thinking about that? It would just be so great if I could tell you that we had solved it. <laughs> yes, yes. That would oh, be yes. amazing. Here's the answer. <laughs> Everything I've said on this podcast, think about you know, I think this is it's much harder than what we're talking about. Everything. Um, we haven't solved it. We've made meaningful progress, though, mm. in the last couple of years on that. Uh, I'll tell you what we did, and then I'll come back around to answering yeah. some, some of your Great. questions. Um, well, let me start by saying, because a lot of people out here study this, and you'll know that there was a big wave three, four, five, six years ago where people were just throwing performance reviews out the window. Like, this is antiquated, and Microsoft did it. And, and I would say to, to you that, that that's a disaster. It's a terrible thing to do. And as long as you have finite comp pools, you will have some version of performance management, whether it's continuous or annual or how you rate, because there are not unlimited resources. You have to figure out how to give from what you have. So don't buy into that. We threw away our ratings thing. It's not real. They're doing it in the background somewhere. So the way we chose to do it is not in the background, but to do it. Uh, as follows. We used to have a single overall rating system mm. where at the end of the year you had a one, two, three, four, five, and one in our parlance was terrific and five was terrible. And uh, that was that. A couple years ago, we moved to a bifurcated system where you had a numerical rating on your objective metrics mm. and a numerical rating on your leadership related metrics, mm. which include team behavior, collaboration, mm. um, all the things that general leadership you would expect. So we moved, and, and it had a profound effect. This is only our second year doing it, so mm. I need three more years of longitudinal data to tell you the whole story. But the texture of the conversation now is very different. Mm. So now I could say, for example, Matt, you made 500% of your revenue goal, which is amazing. Mm. You are credible at that. But everyone hates you. Because <laughs> <laughs> you are a nightmare. It's a workaround. So I'm going to give you this high rating on your objective and a very low rating on your leadership skills because, and over time, Matt, you won't have a place here. Mm -hmm. Even if you make 500%, if you continue to poison the well with your peers. Right. That's a very different, because in the past you would have to go, what are we going to do about Matt? Right. Because he's a disaster, but he made 500%. So you would end up getting a high rating. Right. And then that obscures all this stuff from you. So I like that better, and it gets at some of this uh, team dynamics. And, that, and that's and just things. an example, right? That's I'm, I'm not necessarily no, a nightmare to work no, with. No, I just so. thought it would be fun. <laughs> to the contrary, you guys are terrific to work with. Uh, that's one uh, of I love that. Chat, no, that's great. Yes. Okay. So, yeah. and 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 who's do on the team side and the collaboration side? Who's giving that rating? How are you? Who? What data is informing that side of it? Is it just the manager, or is it the manager ultimately actually delivers the message? But we do have 360s. Mm-hmm. We're about to move to an always-on 360 mm. versus an annual 360. So you have that. The better managers, in addition to the written 360s that come in on their directs, they will call around and say, mm. hey, you know, how do you feel about 10? How you mm. feel? And they'll get that texture. And all of that's rolled up in the ultimate assessment. Yeah, cool. All right, well, we'll check in with you when you have your longitudinal data. You should. Uh, so culture, I want to talk about culture. Mm-hmm. You, you said at the beginning when you when you described that you said no one can be in charge of culture, but but you I, th- I can't remember the word you you've said something very nice nicely phrased which was something like I'm the voice of culture in a place just at the table to make sure that someone has that voice is that 
what does it mean? What does that part of your role entail? Um, the let me let me start by saying like, who owns culture. Let's right. talk about that first, yeah. and I'll tell you tactically yeah. how I deal with it. Um, obviously, the CEO probably has her his hand more directly on the culture than anyone else. Yep. Just almost instantly, the way they move can run through even an organization of this size overnight. So they, they really, if, if I had to put it on any one person, it would be. But but there are cultures all over the place, micro cultures and teams. Uh, so it's that's what I mean. It's it's distributed mm. now. But someone needs to talk to the regulators and to our board about what we're doing to shape mm. culture. Mm. So the way I speak into that is obviously the training and communication plan that you have that goes to all 200,000 people. That makes a difference. Mm. It's an injection of something mm. that will shape the culture in some way. Mm. Um, your compensation design mm. and how that steers at a broad level, mm. that matters. Mm. That shapes culture. Um, your policies and how you deal with people in different events. This is a more of an HR operating committee thing, but that matters. Mm. That shapes the culture. Mm. The way you do performance management, this thing I just talked about, that matters a lot. Yeah. The question I normally get is, how do you control it? Yeah. And, and I say, you don't. Mm. You don't control. It's mm. too hard of a word. You mm. can... You can shape and mold and nudge, yeah. but you better do something intentional because you're going to have a culture one way or the other. Mm. But And how do you, well, here's, a, and this is probably you can't quite either, but how do you measure? How do you know, how do, how do you look at the trajectory? So if you have a goal and say, we want the culture moving this way, how do you know if you are? We're lucky because we have um, something called the Voice of the Employee Survey. Mm. And it's way more than an engagement mm. survey, and we have its years and years we've been running it. Mm. So if we say, for example, our ethical culture index, we have a series of questions that comprise that. Mm. You know, we want to achieve better, yeah. right? We can measure that, right, to mm. some extent. Mm. Now, none of this is perfect. Measuring human behavior and predicting where they're going to move next is not perfect. Right. But, but we use that. Um, you can see trends in performance data. Mm. You can see print, uh, trends in uh, audit mm. results. Mm. Uh, mm. If, you, if you look through a few pieces of data together, uh, you can, a story starts to emerge on mm. each person, geography, product. Mm. You can see it. Crazy. Okay, mm -hmm. cool. All right, Tim, anything else on culture? Uh, I'm just interested maybe to touch on a little bit about how, how you could use, how you might use learning as a way, as a tool for nudging culture, nudging people in a certain direction to shape a culture. We've always kind of looked at learning as a, as a really great opportunity for that kind of internal branding and internal kind of, uh, yeah, internal setting of a culture. So I'm just interested if you use learning in that way and, and how, you might, how you might do that. We're big believers in that. And I'll give you two examples. Well, we use the same format two different times. Two different times, we wanted to get a big message out to the firm. The first was that ethics matters to us more than anything. It's non-negotiable. This was post-crisis, and you can imagine the, the need for that. And the second was to all of our managers, hey, you know, your actions really matter. Like the decisions that you make in these moments that matter can reshape the whole employee experience. In both of those instances, we went out to all 30,000 managers, synchronous, physical, in-class, learning and we used our own leaders to teach that mm. so what we got there when you know one you dip all 30,000 managers 
And second, you get leaders teaching other leaders. And that, that matters a lot to people to see their leaders up there teaching this. Mm. And it's a very effective tool. It, seems, it sends a very clear message when you stand up and say, every single manager at this massive firm is, is going through this today. Mm. Um, and here's what our expectations are. And then you see it flow through your performance management system and, and annual review. That's powerful. That's one example of how we use it. Mm. That's extraordinary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how and how about on I mean that's extreme. I mean not not extreme, but that's a big event. Mm-hmm. Are you are you laying the foundation? I mean, I'm sure everything that you're doing in some way has a cultural element learning wise, but is there a kind of does it play a more a continuous day-to-day type of role that learning can play in driving cultural shifts and and getting new data and insights in, into that? Well, learn, yes, learning specific. I'd say the thing that, that's always on, uh, maybe in the substructure, you can't see it, mm. but what's always on are we have six leadership standards mm. and they are so embedded everywhere, mm. every communication, every piece of training, mm. you know, degreed pathways, you name it, mm. it's popping up everywhere. So it gets in the DNA of the place. That's, that's the way we get at it. Mm. Okay, yeah. awesome. All right. Well, I'm, I don't. I'm almost out of time. Good. So I want to. I got to figure out how to close it out, Tim. We need something splashy. We need something. Let's see if we can make news. I'm just kidding. I don't really know how you make news in our world, but uh, I think we're doing it right now. Yeah, I think so too. Um, well, let me ask you this: Where, when you see, so we've talked about the future work, future of the role. You personally, where, where, what are you focused on for yourself in this role over the next three to five years? What are what are some things that you want to achieve in this in this position, both for the organization, for the learning group, and for yourself individually, personally? I think there there are two frontiers. If 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 we can take them, we'll, it will be amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is, I mentioned this earlier, moving more firmly into this behavior change architect and strengthening the partnerships and the, and the strategy with my coworkers in HR and, and just beyond. Mm. Like harmonized strategy across the firm, mm. uh, behavior change type of thing. That sounds so easy when I say it. It's almost impossible to do, mm. but we're going to get after that. And the second thing that I just obsess on is... Um, tacit knowledge, unlocking all the stranded knowledge mm. in the place. Mm. Because I worry about competitive advantage. And because I've been back our 1950s, competitive advantage was durable, mm. right? You tend to have a distribution advantage. It was probably going to be there for a while. A geographic advantage or, or some sort of IP is probably going to be there a while. All that's gone. Mm. So when I ask myself, like, what's the one thing that's durable? It's the collective power of the people that you have in your context. In mine, it's city, but it could you know, yeah. fill in your family. But the problem is, in a knowledge economy, all that value is locked up in heads and hearts of the people. Mm. So how do you get more of that out, more collaboration, more joint work, more innovation at a joint level? Like, just if I could up that 2%, mm. it'd be amazing. Extraordinary. All right. Well, All right. We'll, maybe we'll check in with you next year and see how that's going. Sounds good. <laughs> yeah, sure. Before we do that, remember that you can find more about Nomadic Learning at nomadiclearning.com. Uh, be sure to check out our blog on nomadiclearning.com. You could subscribe to that. And you can follow us on Twitter. I think the handle's at nomadiclearn. Um, and you check us out on LinkedIn too. There you go. Thank you so much. We love uh, Nomadic. We love, we love your product for sure. And we love the way... 
you guys work with us and we've gotten a lot, a lot of value from our partnership. So thank you for everything. Well, thank you. We love working with you guys too. Good. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Take care. Thank you. Thanks guys.